Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement Podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, sports stars that are out there making it happen. Today, we're with Daryl Corletto. For those that don't know Daryl, he's a basketball player who played at the highest level for 20 years. He's also played across uh, in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. He played in four championships in the NBL, two with the Melbourne Tigers and two with New Zealand. Um, he's played with some of Australia's best basketballers of all time and, and worked with some of the best coaches of all time. So there's a lot of wisdom in this episode. So sit back, enjoy this week's episode with Daryl Corletto. Okay, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement Podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, sports stars, to really pull out the wisdom of their success and their journey and what it takes to be able to, I guess, live life with passion and purpose. And today I have a good friend of mine, Daryl Corletto, on the show, and we're going to have an amazing conversation because Daryl has been playing sport at the highest level for nearly 20 years. He played across New Zealand, Australia and the UK uh, in the NBL where he he was a part of four championship teams. He's also been a captain of the Melbourne Tigers as well. He's also got great experience playing overseas New Zealand and the UK as well. Um, He's played with some of the greatest names in Australian basketball history, the likes of Andrew Gaze and um, I guess he's seen the evolution of the NBL as well so we're going to touch a little bit on that but also his wife is an extremely successful sports star as well that's been a world champion in netball so um, I'm going to hand over and welcome to Daryl. Hey mate thanks for having me looking forward to it. No worries and I always like to start um, to really provide a bit of context to the whole story and where we go with it, for you to really fill out a bit of that journey of, you know, NBL, 20 years, going to play in the UK. So, you know, if you can just spend a few minutes just really, like, filling out that story, then we'll go from there. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it was uh, 20 years. Like you said, it's gone pretty quickly. Uh, Well, it did go pretty quickly. Um, Yeah, look, I I played my junior basketball uh, with the Melbourne Tigers uh, under coach Alan Westover, who at the time was um, an assistant coach with the NBL team. Uh, finished up my under-20s there in uh, 1999 uh, and signed my first contract halfway through year 12 to join the, uh, the senior team. So spent, uh, spent 11 years with the Melbourne Tigers, uh, then three years over in New Zealand with the New Zealand Breakers. Uh, came back to Melbourne for one, one year with uh, Melbourne United when it was their first year, which was uh, very exciting to, to come home back to Melbourne. Uh, and then after that, ended up in uh, in the UK for two years. So, yeah, like you said, it was uh, roughly or oh, just on twenty years, and it was uh, it goes pretty quickly. Like every sportsman you'll speak to, they uh, they all say the same thing. Yeah, and look, I mean, um, I guess we'll we'll start with playing basketball at the uh, Melbourne Tigers, and um, twenty years ago, you were playing basketball with you know probably Australia's greatest player. I guess there's players now. Um, that have played a lot more NBA basketball that might supersede his um, legacy from the best part player of all time in Australia. But in Australian basketball terms, Andrew Gaze is certainly someone that's uh, an incredible figure and inspiring leader. Like, what was it like to be able to work alongside Andrew, and what did you learn from him? 
Yeah, Andrew's, um, in my opinion, you're spot on. Andrew is the, the greatest player to ever play uh, in Australia, on Australian shores. Uh, we've had other great players play here, like obviously Joe Ingalls and, and Paddy Mills. Um, but in terms of the impact of, of basketball in Australia, Andrew, he's the, he's the GOAT um, with that, hands down. Uh, I, I learned very, very quickly with Andrew that um, to get to his level or anywhere near him or even to, to be on the same court as him, you need to be super, super competitive. Um, he's a type of person that, that hates to lose. Uh, and, and it's interesting, the, the more successful people you meet along your journey all have the same mindset. Uh, they're, they're super competitive. They have to win. Um, and Andrew was, I was 18, you know, this, this little kid, 18, who was told I was never going to make it um, and thrown into the wolves, you could say, with, with Andrew. I'd turn up to training five days a week and there'd be Andrew Gaze, Leonard Copeland and Mark Brakey. I, I was, <laughs> you know, this young kid going up against him every day. And you, you find out quickly um, that the first year or two, they're really testing you out um, to see if, you, if, you, if they can break you. Um, and if you can sustain that, that competitiveness with them uh, and not kind of bow down to them and give in to them, that they give you a lot of respect uh, and then, then they'll teach you. They take you under their wing and they teach you. Uh, but Andrew is the type of person that even if it's a cards game or dominoes or any game, he has to win. Um, and I remember we used to train five till seven at nighttime uh, at the old North Melbourne Stadium there. And, you know, training would be seven o'clock and it'd be the last game. And sorry, the, the young group would win. Um, but we weren't allowed to go home until he would win. <laughs> so it, all, it all, almost got to the point where you almost allowed him to win this last game so we could all leave the stadium. Um, it's just incredible. And then after training, him and Leonard Copeland would, uh, you know, they'd stick around for an hour after training just doing shooting games. And, and in all honesty, you could sell tickets for people to come and watch that. It was just entertainment and two competitive people going at it daily. And uh, Andrew was like that with everything in life. He, uh, even, even now you see him on the TV, he's still super competitive. And I have no doubt that's what's taken him so far. And you touched on um, a really good point then, you know, winners, people that want to have success at the highest level in their niche, whether it could be corporate career, could be business, could be sport, whatever it is, you know, they have that winning mindset and, and they are willing to do the sacrifices and the extra one percenters to, um, to win. Is that something that you saw? And I guess, you know, you were like a captain of the side, you know, you played at that level for such a long period of time. Is that something that you would instill into um, people if they want to have success, just go outside their comfort zone and do what it takes? I think, uh, you know, that's, that's my favourite topic to talk about right now uh, is, is the comfort zones. People that sit in comfort zones don't, well, they get somewhere, but they don't reach their potential. They don't, they don't stand out. They don't make a difference. Um, and, and I really noticed this when I went to, uh, to New Zealand. I'm probably skipping ahead a little bit. But, um, you know, Melbourne, I was there for 10 years, and I ended up even personally getting in a comfort zone. Um, you know, you start thinking that you're, you're working hard. You're thinking that you're doing the right things. Um, but it, was, it wasn't until I landed in New Zealand that I really realised what it took um, to become professional and to become successful and uh, as play, play a role in a team that's become successful. Um, and they were all about um, getting 1% better every day. Um, you know, what did I do today that made me better than I, than I was yesterday? How, how did I become a better person or a better player today than I was yesterday? Um, and now carrying over into, into the, the corporate world, that's something that I've I'm kind of driving into my own team now work is that the, the, the one percenters make you better um, than you were yesterday. And that's going to make us better than our competitors. 
um, you know, if you sit there and you, you're happy to, to plateau, uh, they're going to catch you pretty quickly. So it's always, it's always a, a climb. Um, and even if it is 1% better each day, it's uh, over the journey of, of a year, you're going to be a hell of a lot better than you were last year. Yeah, and I guess, um, I mean, in professional sport, people do move around. Um, and in basketball, it's a global sport as well. And there's so many opportunities. And that's what I love about, um, you know, global sports where, you know, you could be an Australian-based sports star and then, you know, uh, go and try yourself out in different countries. And you've gone to New Zealand and you're know, moving your life into a new, um, I guess, new way of living is is different again. And that's getting out of your comfort zone. If you spent 11 years or something at the Melbourne Tigers, your captain, you played in championships, it would have been easy just to sail through and, and be, you know, a, a one, I guess, one team player for your whole career. But um, what were some of the decision making processes around making that move? Yeah, mine was mine's an interesting one because it came about uh, after 2010 season. I probably had my best season individually um, that I'd had. Um, and I was 20, 28 years old at the time. And they say with basketball, you, you hit your peak between 27 and 32. Um, so I was ready. I felt like I was ready to kind of have another good year the next year. And, um, you know, I was signed on for two more years. And uh, we went away on a preseason trip to Coffs Harbour. Um, and I remember I played a game and... I was just about to run out and it was really weird. The coach said to me, uh, he said, um, hey, just make sure you enjoy today. Make sure you enjoy this game. And it was really weird. I didn't think about it till after, but I thought, you know what? I've, I've played for, <laughs> for 10 years. I enjoy every game. That's why I do it. Uh, it's a really, really weird thing to say. Um, and then I found out the next morning that, that the club had actually signed Paddy Mills um, because the NBA lockout had just come on and he, he was looking for a game and he had to come home to Melbourne. So... Uh, with the basketball back then, there was a, a point system where every player was ranked between one and 10 and each club was allowed to have, I think it was 84 points. I think it was per club. And Paddy Mills was 10. Um, I was an eight. Um, and another teammate of mine, Cameron Trigal was an eight, but he was six foot 10, a, a big fella. So we had to, we only had two points spare. So with Paddy Mills coming in, we had to let someone go that was worth eight points. Um, so it was either me or Cam and Paddy is my position. So it was, it was, I was shown the door to some extent. They said I could stick around and train, um, be, you know, get my full salary and just train and wait. But personally, I was, I felt I was ready to have a good year. So I did, didn't want to waste it just training. Um, so I went up to New Zealand and uh, in all honesty, it's probably the best thing that I, that I did throughout my career because it allowed me to grow as a player. Um, you know, they play a different system. I got to play, didn't feel like a robot. I uh, got to play basketball and, and also grow as a person. You know, me, me and Jules got to move away from everyone and uh, just settle in New Zealand and make lifelong friends um, in Auckland, which, which we still, to this day, we still love and we still call that place our, our second home. Mm. And you did, I have heard you speak on another show um, and you were talking about playing in New Zealand and, and some of the people you played with there. So you played with the greatest of all time players in Australia and then you got to play with the greatest of all time players in New Zealand as well and, and have success with both teams. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was very lucky. <laughs> it was all, yeah, sports, sport and life, I think, is, is about timing. Uh, right place at the right time and, and obviously the hard work. But you know, I landed in New Zealand and they'd just come off winning a championship. Um, one of their players failed a drug test, unfortunately. Uh, so I got the call up to go there. Uh, our third training session, me and CJ Bruton, who's one of the greatest of all time as, as well, bumped kneecaps um, and then he fractured, he fractured his kneecap. So he was out for 10 weeks. Um, so I ended up starting from game two 
um, and kept that starting position for three years. And yeah, like you said, got to play with Dylan Boucher, Mika Vakona, Cedric Jackson, CJ Bruton, some amazing players, Tom Abercrombie. Um, these guys are heroes over in New Zealand. And uh, yeah, I was a small part of that. And just jumped on their train, which which was good, and allowed me to win two more. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. And, and before I move on to your third journey into the UK, I want to touch a little bit on the NBL because I found it quite an interesting sport. And you know, probably over your twenty years, you've seen um, some times where it's you know like really high um really popular and then there's times where you know it felt there's a lot of uncertainty clubs that were you know leaving and new clubs starting up all the time um and i don't know how it was affecting crowds and confidence and so on like that along your journey what were some of the challenging times that you've seen with the mbl um and some of the great times yeah it's um I guess I was unfortunate at the start because my first year was the year that they moved from winter um, to summer. Um, and that really affected the whole league uh, at the start. The, the crowds dropped off. Because I, I remember as a kid, you know, a lot of people used to go to the footy with their dads at the MCG and, you know, that would finish at 5.36 and then you'd walk across the road to the, to, to the basketball with your dad and you'd have a whole day of sporting commitments, just, you know, you and your dad or your mum or whoever took you to the, to the sporting events. Um, and that was kind of, kind of taken away. So we went from Melbourne Park Arena with 15,000. And then we moved to the State Netball Centre in Royal Parade there, which was um, 3,500, which, in all honesty, was a great stadium to play in front of. The, the fans are on top of you. It's really noisy. But in terms of revenue for the clubs, it really took a hit early 2000s. Um, came back up a little bit towards 2010, 2011. Um, again, in New Zealand, you're kind of away from, the, I guess, the mainstream's cities of Australia so you don't really you don't really see much of the NBL when you're in New Zealand it's really just the New Zealand teams uh, or the team um, and then towards the end it was when I came back to United for a year it was the time that Larry Kesselman had taken over um, and, and they had this big big plan you know had this five-year plan to put in place and you know it's um, it's very very satisfying now to, to, to sit at home on a couch and have a glass of red and and, and watch the league in, in the position that it is right now. Um, you know, to see Melbourne United up and about, Melbourne Phoenix back, um, you know, Perth, 15,000 to every game. My, my last two years were when the Wildcats moved to the new stadium and um, that, 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 that stadium in the heart of Perth is incredible. Um, so, you know, 15,000 there. The league is, the league is, is heading in the right direction. Um, obviously, with the, what's going on now around the world with COVID, it's, uh, it might take a little bit of a hit. Um, but I'm hoping that the um, I'm hoping crowds can go back to the games and we can we can sit sit back and watch 10,000 people at, at every NBL game, which which is great. And I think Larry's his plan. I think Larry's the type of person that when he puts his mind to it and he does it, it it's going to work out. So it's in good hands. Yep. And the reason I asked that question because I always found it quite interesting. Like at, at a world level, Australia's always been around. You know that around the mark of uh, you know pinching a medal at a world championship or or even at the olympic games and a lot of our players are really you know i guess when i was watching basketball you know andrew and and bradkey and um luke longley like there was only just a, a handful of players that were nearly role players at nba level but now we are producing like genuine genuine superstars at the nba level have you have you seen evolution of basketball in Australia change? And what, what do you think is the big driver behind that? 
Yeah, it's definitely changed. Um, and, and, and I will say this, just wait the next couple of years and you'll see a, a lot more um, Paddy Mills, Ben Simmons leaving Australia to go over to America. Um, what's driven this is, is a lot of the imports that came out here in the, in the 80s um, or early 90s have, have stayed here, um, become Australians, and, and they've, they've made a living in Australia. Um, and obviously they meet Australian women, uh, have, have Australian kids, and, and these kids are so talented. Um, you know, obviously you got you got Paddy Mills, you've got you know, Ben Simmons, Joe Ingles, Bogut did amazing things, Aaron Baines. But so many guys over there now playing. Um, but the next the next wave of young kids coming through, <clears throat> you know, speaking to Andre Lamanis the other week, um, the next wave is pretty exciting. Um, you know, even you got guys like Warwick Giddy who played with Melbourne. His his young kid Josh Josh Giddy who was five when I was playing with Warwick. He's um, you know, he's touted to be an NBA pick next year. I think it is. Um, you know, six eight point guard. So there, there's these amazing, there's an there's amazing talent pool about to come through as well. And um, you know, going back to the uh, to the to the medals at the World Cup and Olympics with Andre, I spoke to him two weeks ago, and um, you know, he stepped away from the Boomers' uh, job with the all time greatest winning percentage of an Australian head coach. Um, and I asked him why, like, why did he step away? And and he felt that in order for the Australian team to to win a medal he had to step away because the team was so dominant of NBA players at the moment. There's nine, nine out of the 10 guys are in the NBA. Um, and he said, they live a different lifestyle. They live a, it's a different lifestyle. So he felt they needed a coach like Brett Brown, who's involved in the NBA to, to get the best out of a group that's full of NBA players. Um, so look, I, I, I really think that if, if the Olympics go ahead next year, um, I really think if Ben Simmons plays, I think we'll, I think we'll medal. Yeah, and and just on Brett Brown, I'm not sure what your relationship with him is, but I, I admire people that go on these amazing like 20, 30 year journeys. Like you know, in AFL terms, Chris Fagan coached me back in 1993 or 94, playing for the Tassie Mariners, and um, you know, watching him, you know, get an assistant coaching job and then just slowly progress, and now he's at the head of Brisbane Lions. Like you know, best part of you know, 30 years later, like um, Brett Brown has been one of those in the NBA. Um, did you have much to do with him? No, Brett, Brett had left um, the year I started. Um, but I've, I've had a lot to do with players that have been under him. Um, and, and they all speak the same thing, that he's just an amazing person. Um, and I think it's, you know, that speaks volumes, I think, of, of longevity in sport is if you, you don't burn bridges, you, you treat people right, you work hard. Um, and I, Again, I'll go back to Andre. <laughs> he always, him and Andre, Andre and Brett have an amazing relationship. Um, and Andre's advice that he gives to everyone is just be great. Just be great at your current job. So just be great at what you do and the success will follow. Um, you know, a lot of people get involved in sport and within two years want to be a head coach or want to be you know, captain or want to be the highest pay or whatever it is. But if you just be great at what you're doing now, success will follow. Um, and, and obviously I speak about Andre a lot. My relationship with him is, is, is pretty strong and a lot of his values come from Brett. So I could only imagine that Brett's a, uh, an amazing person and deserves all the success that he's, that he's currently getting. Yep. And on your, um, I guess, boomers prior to, you know, the, the last, you know, maybe three to four years, a lot of our, the Australian basketballers too were playing in Europe as well. So that, that uh, obviously they're pretty strong competitions too. Yeah, Europe's um, Europe's a completely different style of um, of basketball. Um, 
my mum and dad, well, mum was born in UK and dad was Scotland. So I've always held a, a UK passport. Um, always thought about heading over and playing, but obviously with Jules playing netball, um, we decided to stay, to stay home so she could continue to play. Um, but yeah, it's a different style. It's, um, it's a very slow paced. Uh, a lot of people call it an old man style. <laughs> um, <laughs> slow paced kind of systems and, and things like that. So the, the European style is completely different to the Australian style and also completely different to the American style. But there is a lot of talent um, in, in Europe of, of Australian players at the moment. Yeah, and while we're talking about the UK and British passports, etc., my wife's got a British passport, so I was listening to your conversation about your time in, is it Plymouth or, um, yeah, uh, the other day, and um, yeah, so my wife's family are up around the Newcastle area, so I heard you were jumping on buses for 10 hours to go up there. Um, talk about the move to the UK and how did that come about, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll ask a few questions about your time there so you don't need to fill out the full story but um yeah what what led you to the UK was it your wife and you were um talented and both wanting to go over there like just uh, set it up yeah it was um I finished up in Melbourne United in 2015 um and they kind of had a clear out end of the year anyone it was really anyone above the age of 30 was was gone um so it was something that I've always thought about doing and Jules finished netball in 2015. So we thought, why not? We'll just, we'll give it a crack. We don't have kids yet. Um, we'll head over and, and see what it's like over there. And um, yeah, obviously you'll, you'll ask some questions, but uh, yeah, we landed and it was a, a massive culture shock, but again, a, a massive learning curve for me as a person. Yeah. And look, some, some of the things are, you know, like, I guess that listening to that conversation, like the level of professionalism didn't seem to be quiet at the NBL level, even though there was a lot of, you know, really high level players there. So it, was, it seemed like you'd walk straight into a, a firestorm of, um, you know, when you're making a big decision to move overseas and re relocate your family and so on as well. So um, do you want to just um, talk about a few of the challenges that you faced? Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it was um, it was a big decision. Um, so I left. Uh, we left in September. Um, so we we're gone for ten months of the year um, and home for obviously two months. Um, but yeah, we we landed there and um, ended up after three games. They they sacked the coach and asked me to be player coach um, of the group. And part of the reason of me going there was just to enjoy basketball again. So I didn't really want to be the the player coach. Um, so I said no multiple times. Um, they kept asking and then they, they, they kind of just said I had to do it. Um, so I ended up doing it, but absolutely hated it. Um, it, 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 it. The biggest thing it did was it divided me with the, the rest of the playing group, um, which, which is not a good position to be in. <laughs> when you, I was playing 30, 35 minutes a game. I led the league in scoring, but I had to still control the, uh, 10 other guys um, and you know, everyone was coming to me about their court time, about and everyone over there is on, on, on one-year contracts. Um, so it becomes really competitive after Christmas when there's a couple of months left in the season. Um, so I didn't enjoy it. Um, they said if I went back the next year, I was allowed to take someone. So I took took a, a, an old coach from Melbourne um, over there. And um, so he was... There was a lot of miscommunication about was he the coach, was I the coach. There was a lot of, um, a lot of I guess... Uh, unrest within the group um, and, and the hardest part about the second year was we had Cooper, my young fella at um, August 11th uh, and I flew out on September the 1st 
Um, and then Jules and Cooper didn't come over until October, October 10th, I think it was. So there's about six or seven weeks there at the start where I had to leave a four, four week old baby and my wife, our first one and, and head overseas. And I remember sitting in Melbourne airport watching, actually watched my suitcase go on, on the, on the conveyor belt thing onto the plane. And I actually sat there and I rang her and I said, look, I, I, I don't think I can get on this plane. Like, I, I think I'm going to ask my bags back and, um, and come home. Um, and I remember walking to the lady, the customer service, and I was about to ask, you know, I had tears in my eyes. I was about to just give up on it. Um, but she rang Jules again and she said, no, no, go, we'll be fine. We'll be there soon. So anyway, I jumped on the plane, landed, and then, uh, yeah, they were there seven weeks later. But it is a big thing to, to get up and leave your whole family. And, you know, I sit at home now and watch the Fox footy and, you know, AFL 360, and you hear these Jack Rebolt the other night with tears in his eyes talking about, you know, he's left his wife at home with, you know, with with a with a baby, and um, you feel selfish. You feel really selfish and guilty when you when you when you move away from your family. So that that's probably the toughest thing that that I ever did. Yeah, and and I guess I'll pick up on one of the stories that you're talking about. Like, and it's really interesting because you're a leader and you're in a position like that, and you've made massive sacrifices. But you went through the phase of the club that was basically out of finance, and you know you had to, you know, be the leader and protect and keep the group together but you're also going look I'm not getting paid and the players aren't getting paid in that as well do you want to just touch on your experience with that yeah yeah yeah. this is um yeah this is this was uh, a really tough situation um I landed in September um so the year before going back they asked me what I wanted in terms of finance and budget and salary for the whole team and the whole club and and I said to them I said look if you want to be uh competitive you, you can't expect us to sit on a bus for 10 hours, like you said, and drive to Newcastle, play a game, drive back and play that next day. I said, we just can't do it. Um, so we have to fly. So we ended up flying and staying at hotels. And, you know, they told us they had the budget. And as a player and a coach, you, you, you think they'd honour that. Um, but come October, so I'd been there six weeks, um, October or November it was, they, they called me in and the owner had ran out of money. Um, so I had... I had good mates from Melbourne over there with young families that I'd taken across. And uh, there was a, a massive amount of guilt that I felt, um, you know, when I have mates that can't, can't feed their kids. Um, and a lot of them are living check to check. Um, so I, I, I made a sacrifice to the, to the owner. I said, whatever you do, please uh, allow these players to get some money that they can live. Um, I'll, I'll get, I'll personally get mine at the end. Um, so I literally went nine months with no, no income. Um, obviously was transferring money from Australia. And, and again, we had a, uh, Cooper was 10 weeks old when they were 12 weeks old when they arrived. And, you know, it just wasn't, I had to kind of put on a brave face every day at training and at games and expect to turn up and play at hundred percent, knowing that I, I actually don't know if I'm going to get paid for my, my time over there. So anyway, we ended up playing the season and, uh, and, the, and the playing group were, were the hardest part was they, I, I think that they thought I was still getting paid. So they would get, if they were a day late or two days late, they'd be ringing me or knocking on my door and asking where their money is. And here I am, haven't been paid for four months. I've got you know upset wife and well, super supportive wife, but you know frustrated wife and a little baby. And these guys were just young. A lot of them were just young and single, wanting to go out and buy beers and have fun. Um, but there was a couple of guys with families that I really, I really felt for. So I made sure they got their money. Um, and it got to a point where I actually the season finished and I still hadn't received any not one dollar or pound um so I hopped, we went to the airport to fly home and i was owed nine months salary um i got a phone call uh at the airport when i was just about to hop on a plane from from 
another guy that knows the owner saying that the owner's put the club up for sale. Um, so you're probably not going to get your money. Um, so I flew home, <laughs> I flew home a 28 hour journey home, 40 hours all up thinking that I wasn't, wasn't going to get it. Um, and I, I still didn't get it for four months after I landed back in Melbourne. Um, but the money, the money was an issue, but it was more the, the, I guess the, the abuse I got from, from everyone else at the club um, because they weren't getting their money. Um, and I kept it in and I, I, didn't, I didn't say anything to anyone and I let it build up and up and up and got home to Melbourne and actually ended up in hospital for two days um, with heart. My heart was, was beating uh, at 140 beats, um, just sitting still. So uh, it was a, there was a lot of built-up anxiety and stress. Um, so I just had to, yeah, <laughs> step away from sport and finish up. And yeah. it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was actually that, 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 that interview you heard the other week was the first time I'd spoken about it for four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, I, I could see that, um, and listening to your voice and just, you, you know, your empathy and that for people, you know, you can really see that that took a toll on you just by the way you were explaining that. And, you know, you can see heartbreak there, um, and the anxiety, like, you know, it's, uh, you were trying to do whatever you possibly could, but, um, you know, things went going your way. And, and you had fractured relationships, you, you mentioned from that, that have, you know, um, obviously, you know, that hurts when that happens as well. So, yeah, uh, it does. I had, a couple, I had a couple of really good mates on the team that I had recruited to come over um, that I had no decision or no, like, no input in the decision made by the club to, to let these players go. Um, and with Europe, it's, it's they, if they cut you, uh, you don't get paid out. <laughs> There's no money coming in for these guys. And, and um, you know, I had one of my close mates that, that explained to us on the way to, to a London game that his wife was pregnant, um, expecting the first kid. And uh, I knew heading to the game that he was about to be let go on the Monday. Um, we played the game. He was our best player that night. Driving back from London, and I just knew that he was about the next morning was getting a phone call. And that hurts because he, he, he hasn't spoken to me since then because he thought that it was... It was my my doing. And just on that, like, you know, you've been a captain, you've been involved in successful teams like leadership positions and culture, building culture. Like, it's impossible. And I've, I've interviewed a lot of business people here and it's like nearly the thing that you can't measure, culture. But in a sporting environment like that, what have you seen and what have been some core things that you've noticed in you know, culture and highly successful and poorly successful run teams? What's some things that have worked well and haven't worked well? Yeah, it's all, it's all mindset. Um, it's all being unselfish. Uh, and sport's an interesting one because you, it, it's hard to get the whole group to agree to, to sacrifice for each other. Um, and... and yeah, there's the famous saying, what is it? There's no, there's no I in team or something. And people always say there's an ME. <laughs> but, you know, if you soon realize when you get a little bit older um, that you, the more success the team has, the safer your job is. Um, and as a young guy coming up, all you care about is you're hungry. You know, you want to play, you want to score points, you want to get involved, you want to make, you want your friends to, to say, oh, yeah, yeah, you had a good, you want to go out with your mates and, you want to have that kind of vibe around you. But when you get older, you soon realize that if the team wins, the club won't make changes. Until you lose, they won't make changes. Um, and again, I didn't realize that until I went to New Zealand where, you know, we spoke about they had some of the best players ever to play in New Zealand. And, and they had one rule, and that was how, how do I sacrifice my individual 
uh, success to make the guy sitting next to me better? How do, how do we make each other better to win? Um, and it was just a mindset driven from, from Andre Lamanis and, and, and the leaders of the, of that group. And um, it's, a, it, it's interesting because now I look at, at young kids um, and you try and tell them at an early age that just, just to buy in to what the group's about, like buy into what they're about. Um, success will come. Like it, it'll come later on. It's not going to happen overnight, but it, it'll come. Um, but a lot of young kids just want that, that bigger contract or they want more playing time early on. Um, and you see it, you know, you see it at the college level where young kids, your Paddy Mills, your Dallas Vadovas, your, your Daniel Kickets, these young, these college kids go to smaller schools. So you go to smaller schools, no one knew St. Mary's when these guys went there, um, but they got to play. And they're still playing against the big schools, but they actually got to play 30, 40 minutes a game where I've had so many mates that go to the Arizonas, the, the Dukes, the Connecticut's, the bigger schools, so they can come back and tell people they go there. But four years later, it really hurts your basketball because you don't play um, and you come back and you really haven't played for four years. Um, so it's a similar kind of story. If you go to the better teams and just fit in and play your role, you'll have a much longer career than if you come out guns blazing. Um, and, and, and it's just about an unselfish mindset, I think, is, um, is what makes a successful team. Um, I'll just uh, change gears a little bit. Uh, you've uh, married another highly successful sports star in Australia as well, and obviously a family, etc. How's life um, when you've got two, you know, really people that are driven for success? Um, how how is that environment? I think um, I've heard Joe Ingalls's wife similar. You know, she made sacrifices for him to go and play NBA basketball. Um, how has that all worked for you? And what's the pros and cons? Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of things you have to sacrifice. Um, you know, we. For instance, little things. Well, they're little things, but they're kind of big things. Uh, we went to our first wedding together as as guests um, just recently. Um, so there's a lot of times we have these major events in people's lives that you can't actually attend together. One of us has a game or they have a game the next day or they're interstate. Um, so you, you miss out on a lot of things um, together. Um, and that's one thing that with basketball and netball, and my season would finish in, in April and she'd start in May. So... Even the year we got married, we had we had a, a ten day window window sorry to to have a wedding and and go away for a week, um, and we're just very lucky that her club allowed her to go away a week before her season started. Um, so kind of they kind of they didn't overlap, but we had one week a year where we could get away together, um, which which is okay because it, it kind of kind of helps you because it doesn't you know why she's so focused and her season's on, I remain focused because I I you know, I trained and she was training and we're training together in the garage and, you know, you kind of help each other. Having said that, we're two completely different people. Um, Jules is very, very detailed um, in, in her preparation and, and what she does. Um, we're always a little bit opposite. I was very, I like the casual approach. Um, the more of a social kind of, kind of event. Um, I always had better games if I knew is <laughs> I tell people this and they kind of laugh, but, it's a true story. And I'm sure that a lot of sports people will say the same thing. Um, I actually had relaxed more and had a better game if I knew that I was doing something after the game. Even if it was going to have a couple of beers with mates or going to a, I don't know, an engagement party or just going out to a bar with friends, just, just doing something at the end of the week for a bit of closure. Because you train five days a week. You, you put so much focus in on the game. And then if you don't do anything after the game, you just head home. The next morning you do recovery and you go again Monday. 
Um, so I kind of liked having that little outlet. And it got to the point where Jules was telling me, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, we'd go out for a coffee. I'd have a game that night. She'd, she'd make up a story. She'd, she'd say, oh, we're going to catch up with so-and-so <laughs> for, for, for dinner and a beer or a glass of red after the game, knowing that that kind of relaxed me because when I was playing, I was thinking about that. My mindset wasn't just focused on the job at hand. I always liked to have something else that I was thinking of, uh, where Jules was complete opposite. She was game day. Literally, I, I, <laughs> I'd take the dog for a six-hour walk um, and just get out of the house because she was so focused on, on her job at hand. Yep. And just a couple of NBA um, quirky questions, um, or oh, basketball in general, like do you like seeing, let's say you were a, a passionate Chicago Bulls fan, let's say, for example, and the transition of the team, like in, say, the AFL, which you obviously would know about, a lot of players will play 5, 10, their whole career with it, you know, and that group nearly stay together. But in basketball, Le- you know, LeBron James is Cleveland one year and, you know, someone else the next, Miami the next. And do you, what do you like that about um, the sport if you're, if you're a fan? Yeah, it's, I think if you're a kid, it's tough. It's tough if you're, if you're a kid and you go for, you're from Cleveland um, and, you, and, you know, LeBron's, this will be a bit of a debate, but in my opinion, LeBron's the greatest of all time. Um, so if you're a kid growing up and, and, and watching LeBron in your hometown, your home city, and then the next year he just gets up and leaves to Miami and then he's back for a year or two and then he's off to LA, as a kid, you'd be a little bit confused. Um, but as an adult, understanding it's a business, um, and that's what's, that's what the NBA has got to now. It's, it's a multi-billion dollar business. Um, and you know, these players are you know, getting paid 40 million a year just from their contracts, another 50 million from Nike. Like it's, it, it is a business. Um, it's hard to support a team, uh, mm. as, as a kid, obviously we all grew up with Chicago with Jordan. Um, mm. but right now I'd say I, I just, I like the NBA. Um, I like watching players like Steph and Clay. Obviously, LeBron, I think, is the greatest of all time. But, yeah, as a kid, I'd, I'd say it'd be frustrating now trying to follow a team. <laughs> yeah. And um, did you like the, the Jordan Netflix series? It was good. Yeah, it was good. Um, I don't know how true it was, but it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was good. His mindset is incredible. And, again, you speak about successful people uh, and their mindset of, you know, whatever I do, I'm winning. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's the part I did like. I really enjoyed one part where he said, when they played Washington and that young kid scored 35 on him uh, on say a Thursday night and they hopped on a plane to play there the Friday and he, Jordan made up that story in his head that the kid said something to him um, and, and he carried that into the next game and dropped 50, I think it was, on the young kid. And <laughs> yeah, so that, and the, the kid didn't say anything, but it's just that competitive mindset that, that, that drove him so far. But I think what I'm hearing that there's a Kobe Bryant one coming out. Mm. Um, and all reports is Kobe Bryant uh, was uh, his his mindset was uh, even even greater than Jordan's when it comes to training and competitive. Yep. And just um, as a professional athlete like yourself, um, you finish your career and you've got to transition out. Um, is it something that you know? Do you start making decisions? What do I go into the media? Do I start my own business? Like, do you want to just talk a little bit through that um, process? I find it quite fascinating. I've interviewed a lot of sports people and most of them that I've interviewed have had life after sport. But, you know, I also see a lot of issues with some people that just feel lost after sport as well. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big one. It's a, it's a really, really big one. Um, look, I think the AFL do a fantastic job now of um, 
the players have to do something. Um, it's part of the players' association have set up some some agreement where they have to actually complete some kind of study or trade while they're playing, which I think is it's the greatest thing that the AFL could have done. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of basketballers. I think that you, footy's a little different because you might play for for 10 years and you, you, you've got some money to set yourself up and maybe have a year or two off and, and kind of decide what you want to do. But with basketball, you, you're not earning the same as the footy guys, unless you, obviously you're in the NBA. Um, but you need to kind of have something to fall back on. Um, and for me personally, I actually, I actually didn't know. I, have, I had a lot of little things going on that I thought um, that I might get into. Um, always loved property. Uh, always loved that, that type of thing. Uh, always loved the fitness side of things. So I did all my strength and conditioning certificates, did my real estate, did my property management, did, did all those types of things. Um, finished up, got into real estate for a year. Um, couldn't stand it. <laughs> couldn't stand it. I think you just have to be a different different type of person, um, different mindset. To, and again, for me, it really hit me when I was driving down um, uh, Church Street one day and I saw on a Saturday morning, there was dads there with their little boys who'd been at soccer and basketball on a Saturday morning. And here I was driving in in a suit to go to open homes and auctions. And mm. my little, my little fellow was two. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to get out, I have to get out now because I don't want to miss those moments. Um, yeah. So yeah, so got out, got out. And uh, yeah, at the moment with um, Latrobe Financial in the city and um, I've had a, a good relationship with Greg, who's the, the owner and the, the CEO of Latrobe through basketball um, and it's it's amazing. I love it. It's the same culture. That, you know, I've got a, my own team now of six, um, and it's it's yeah, it's really good. It's a great place to be. Yeah. And what's your role there? Do you work on management, leadership, or are you doing more advisory? Like, what do you do there? Yeah. So I'm I'm the the manager of the uh, premier partners. So basically, we have the the top twenty or thirty brokers um, that send the deals into Latrobe. We we manage all their applications and all their deals. Um, we kind of we give them a the red carpet treatment, I guess you could say. Um, so they've given me it's, it's uh, people ask me what my team's like, and obviously a lot of people I talk to know basketball. So mm-hmm. uh, I say if you're a coach and you were handed LeBron James, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Anthony Davis, and James Harden, how do you think your team's going to go? <laughs> uh, so I was given the best of the best, um, and they have. Yeah, the, 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 my, my role is to keep them at that level. Um, and, and a lot of the values that we stand for is what, um, what, what Andre stood for in basketball. So it's, uh, it's about managing people. Um, still getting my hands dirty, but managing people, uh, not, not, not dictating or micromanaging, just allowing them to succeed. Hmm. Uh, it sounds like you're uh, pretty passionate about that role. So uh, yeah, no, I love it. It's uh, and it's good people. Like when you get when you get someone gives you an opportunity, like like Greg gave me the opportunity. Um, you, you have to, you know, you have to make the most of it. Cool. And at the end of every episode, I have a few little rapid fire questions that don't have to be rapid fire answers. Is there a favorite book? <laughs> Is there a favorite book or two books that are really you know if you, you really enjoyed reading or anything or even podcasts or audibles? Yeah, look, I've, uh, I've just started getting into reading a little bit, um, reading a lot of the mindset books, uh, a lot of success, successful mindset people books. Um, but I'm actually looking forward to, I've heard the, it's a bit different, but I've heard the story about the, um, those 12 soccer team kids that were stuck in the, um, in the cave. I've heard that book's a really good one. So um, I'm actually, actually going to get that one next week and, uh, and have a read of that one. I like, I like feel good stories and I like, uh, I like 
reading books about people's mindsets. Like the All Blacks book is a good one to read. Um, all the books about Kobe Bryant are uh, good to read. What about the best piece of advice you've ever received? Be great at, your, at what you do. <laughs> Big yeah. and successful come. Yep. And what about the worst bit of advice? Might have been going to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> worst bit of advice is probably, uh, yeah, signing on that second year in UK. No, 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 no. The, uh, you know, the worst, I guess the worst bit of advice, you're kind of given from, I guess you're given from your mates, <laughs> which sounds really weird. Hmm. Um, you know, because they expect you, when you're playing as a young guy again, they expect you to go out and, you know, I'll try and you know, have 20 points or take 15 shots or do this or do that. And sometimes you don't want to let them down, but yeah, it, it, it's not really advice, but it's, uh, mm, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to call it, but it's, uh, you got to get, you got to block that stuff out. Yeah. And just in life in general, that's, you know, be careful who you listen to because, you know, your mates will, they, they love you. So they will want to protect you. And sometimes that could be holding you back from doing something as well. So getting good advice from good people that are, you know, have already done what you've already, you know, what you're wanting to achieve. What, what about uh, where do people find you? You know, is it professional? Do you, you know, are you in coaching or got anything on the go outside of what you're doing? Um, no, not really. Don't, don't really have um, that much time to be honest. As, as you know, with young kids, it's, uh, it fills up your day. Um, fills up your day so I get well at the moment I'm working from home which is which is handy uh, but normally because I've still got that mindset about you know, working hard and getting up early when I was um, working in the city um, I was getting up at four o'clock every day and going to the gym from 4 30 till 6 um, having a shower jumping on the train and getting into work at 7 30 and then I'd get home at six so you only have that hour or so to see the kids before they go to bed um, so not a lot of time out outside of that um but at the moment now that i can work from home it's saving me two and a half hour or two hours a day um i might look at doing something else <laughs> we just don't know how long this is gonna gonna continue on for i guess and from me like i've known you for you know over 10 years now and watch your journey and uh always admired you you've got a great heart you you know you've achieved a lot in sport and that so much respect so i do want to thank you for taking the time to jump in on uh, this week's episode because yeah, it's been a fascinating conversation i love talking about sport and and trying to do that crossover between high level sport and success in life because i think there is certainly a correlation there so thanks daryl for jumping on no worries thank you and, and also mate watching you over the last 10 years um i watch a lot of your uh, your facebook videos um, and it, it, it is, it's fantastic to see how, uh, how successful you've become and, uh, and I know how, how hard you've worked. So, so congratulations on, uh, on everything you've achieved and I wish you all the best moving forward. Well, I hope you got a lot out of that episode with Daryl Corletto. Playing sport at the highest level for 20 years is an achievement in its own right. But we also learnt about getting out of comfort zones, winning mindsets, uh, leadership, culture. It was a powerful, packed conversation. If you liked this week's episode, make sure you give us feedback, you share, because it's really important to be able to get great guests like Daryl on the show. If you haven't got a copy of my book, you've got one shot, make sure you head across to craigschultz.com and get your copy there. Um, as I always say at the end of every episode, go out there and live life with passion and purpose. You've only got one shot at life. Go out there and give it your best shot. My name's Craig Schultz and I'm the host of the One Shot Movement podcast.